pretty much any woman who's being assertive is more likely to be seen as less likable and less capable than a man who's saying the exact same thing. Because after all, being assertive is part of being a leader. So if we're telling women to be more like a leader, to lean in, to advocate for themselves, they're going to have to be assertive about it. And then they're going to get some shade in response. Now, should you have to adapt your style? Hell no. You should be, as a woman, treated equally and perceived equally as your male counterparts when you're negotiating your salary or being assertive or speaking up at a meeting because you dissent from the group think. Is that what happens every day? Nah. That's not, unfortunately, the world we live in. You're still going to run into some bias BS in how people perceive you. That was Emily Aries, and you're listening to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette, episode 169. Welcome to Real Talk Radio with Nicole Antoinette. That's me, the podcast that's filled with refreshingly honest conversations about the wonderful mess of being human. On this show, my guests and I are committed to one simple but powerful thing, telling the truth about our lives. No one's here to sell you anything. No one's trying to get you to fix yourself or your life. I don't have any magic answers. I can't give you a miraculous 10-day, six-step life hack plan for anything, really. But as a recovering self-help junkie myself, I'm so over that quick fix approach, honestly. And my guess is maybe you are too. Perhaps that's why you're here. So we'll be diving into today's episode in a few minutes. But before that, I have two quick things that I want to share with you. The first is a reminder that this is definitely an adult podcast covering adult subjects, often using adult language, where we talk about things like work, love, sex, money, addiction, friendship, racism, body image, mental health. We talk about grief, fear, courage, change, and everything in between. My hope is that these conversations will make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, while also challenging you to consider a new perspective from someone whose lived experiences might be different from your own. That's really important. And then the other thing that I want to tell you is that you won't hear any ads or sponsor promotions on this podcast, because these conversations, they're 100% listener-funded, made possible by awesome, regular people like you who give $8 or more per eight-episode season. The show is and will always be free. But if you love it, if these conversations do indeed make you laugh, think, and feel less alone, I hope you'll go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more per eight-episode season. This tangible financial support, that's what allows me to keep making new episodes, and it pays everyone involved in making Real Talk Radio. That includes me, my sound engineer, Adam Day, and every single one of my guests. It's been my dream for years to be able to pay all my guests, and our community recently met the funding goal that makes that possible now. So all the guests whose stories you love are indeed getting paid for their time with us, and higher rates are always paid to our guests of color, as well as our queer and trans guests and others with traditionally marginalized identities. I know it's not the norm in the podcast industry to pay guests or to have a listener-funded show, but I fully believe that where we spend our money, it's a real-time vote for the kind of world we want to live in. And if I want to live in a world where people get paid for the work they do, especially creative work, that means it's up to me to create that model here at Real Talk Radio. So that's what your financial support contributes to. And as a special thank you for supporting the show, you'll get access to over 40 hours of bonus content, as well as our monthly book club, my weekly behind-the-scenes email series called Notes of Grit and Grace. That's where I share my real life in real time. Plus, you'll be the first to know when tickets go on sale for live events and retreats. 
Also, 5% of each season's profit is donated to a different social justice organization. With past donations going to places like Trans Lifeline, Black Lives Matter, and Planned Parenthood, so you can feel really good about that aspect of your pledge contribution as well. Over on our Patreon page, you'll see that there are currently three different funding levels. There's an $8 level, a $16 level, and a $25 level, each with their own unique, awesome bonuses. At the $25 level, we even do live Google Hangouts together after the release of each new season, and oh my gosh, those are so much fun. So one more time, that's patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to support the show. And at the very end of this episode, you'll actually get to meet one of our Patreon community members who joins me for a fun little rapid fire question round. So stick around for that after the main episode for sure. And now let's dive right into today's episode. Today, you'll get to meet Emily Aries. Emily is a speaker, podcast host, author, and the founder and CEO of Bossed Up, an award-winning personal and professional development community where she helps women craft happy, healthy, and sustainable career paths. In her TED Talk, The Power of No, Emily shares how to set healthy boundaries and invest in your sustainable success. Her forthcoming book, Bossed Up, A Grown Woman's Guide to Getting Your Shit Together, will be released this May by Public Affairs Books and serves as a practical roadmap for women who want to write their own come-up story on their own terms. In this episode, Emily shares her own story of experiencing and eventually overcoming true burnout. We talk about what burnout actually is, why it tends to hit women so hard, and some ways to overcome and even prevent it. Emily shares so many helpful, relatable details from her own life and career journey, including what she's learned about how to be a more successful negotiator, why she used to struggle so much with people-pleasing, what a sustainable career looks like, and more. I loved this conversation, and I so appreciate Emily's willingness to be open about the messier and more imperfect parts of her own story. I hope that you enjoy this just as much as I did. So all of that starts in just a moment, and as always, you'll be able to find all the links and resources mentioned in this episode over in the show notes at NicoleAntoinette.com slash podcast. Awesome. We are good to go. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Tell me something that you are totally obsessed with right now. Skincare? <laughs> I feel like Instagram did this to me, but I uh, I battled with adult acne last year, and ever since, I've been taking my skincare game very seriously. <laughs> okay. I would like to hear some more details because I was just talking about this um, a couple of weeks ago in my Friday email that I feel like there was a day of adult school that talked about skincare and makeup, <laughs> and th- and I like missed it, I guess, and now I'm almost 34, and I'm like, how does wash face? <laughs> yeah. No, I totally feel you. I never really struggled with any skincare issues as a teenager, so I feel like if you fall into that camp, you stumble your way into your 30s, like buying whatever apricots grab is in the grocery store aisle and then shit hit the fan for me when my hormones I think changed at age 30 and now I'm a skincare junkie on the side. I know it's like hashtag (laughs) self-care. I know it's like the most cliche form of self-care but I have to say after having run many an experiment on my own face over the past year and a half, I love what I've discovered, especially living in a really dry climate like Denver, Colorado. Okay, so what part of your routine do you want to give a shout out to? Is there any particular product you love or anything that you do? Yeah, there's one I have to shout out to because this company was founded by a fierce woman named Denise Cartwright, and she taught me so much about my microbiome. She has a company called Crude, uh, Crude Skincare, 
And her crude oil cleanser has been a total game changer because I was previously using really harsh chemicals to exfoliate and like basically tear apart my skin every day. And now I have such a more gentle, loving approach to how I care for my skin and her oil cleanser changed my whole life. Okay. Well, I will definitely look into that because I it's, it, this came up in another episode this season too um, with yeah. Lindsay Mack about skincare stuff. And yeah, it is on top of mind for me. So I'm excited to <laughs> dig in more and try a couple things. I just wrote a post about how I healed my really dry winter skin on the Boss Up blog too. So there's lots of, lots of products I could geek out with your listeners about all day. <laughs> I love it. What's something that you think most folks might not know about you? Like something maybe only your close friends know? Something that even my close friends, I feel like, can't fathom is the idea that this really strong, very outspoken woman that I am today was once in a totally toxic relationship and so burnt out because I was so busy trying to people-please everybody that it almost, like, feels astounding, especially to my now husband, who's like, I just can't imagine you – not being the outspoken, you know, fierce person that I am today. But uh, like not that long ago, 10, five to 10 years ago, I was just totally not owning my power over my own life. Yeah. I want to hear more about the people pleasing. Can you give some examples of how that showed up for you? Like what did that look like? Sure. So I graduated at the height of the Great Recession in 2009, and I had a very fancy degree in hand from Brown University after studying political science and cognitive science. And I was really fascinated by how we collectively make choices in the body politic, but also by how we personally make choices in our own brains, uh, sometimes not so consciously. (laughs) And after landing, you know, a total dream job, especially given the mantra of the Great Recession, which was to be grateful for whatever you could get, I fell into – these habits that really set me up to burn out because over the past 18 years, like so many of us in academic life, I had learned to master perfecting, performing, and pleasing everybody else around me. That's what gets you A's, you know? And I think a lot of women who have a syllabus in hand can crush it because we can go home, put our nose to the grindstone, deliver what the professor wants, and get that gold star or whatever it is. And life after college just doesn't work that way, or life after school of any kind doesn't work that way. So for me, it looked like every single morning having my Democratic National Committee-issued BlackBerry and my personal iPhone in my hands before my feet hit the ground every morning, Uh, never having set foot in a gym or really exercised much for the three years that I spent organizing for America and, you know, trying to save the country by day. And then making matters even more complex is that I was living with and in love with my very high-functioning alcoholic ex-boyfriend. And so I felt like I had to save his life by night, and there was no room in my life to not only care for myself, but even ask myself what I really wanted. I was just operating on autopilot, trying to be everything to everybody, and it completely left me burnt out and, and without a sense of who I was or who I wanted to be. Yeah, being in that role of, you know, taking care of other people and not taking care of yourself, do you feel like that's something that you were raised into? Was that modeled for you when you were younger? (laughs) Well, the first chapter of my book is called Mama the Martyr. So, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, spoiler alert, yes, I think you're onto something there, uh, Nicole. So, here's the thing. My mom 
is an incredible, loving, totally amazing woman. She's a, a caretaker by trade. She's a labor and delivery nurse. And she is the mother of four children. And my and my dad, if you can't, my dad, he's five. <laughs> so I feel like she really modeled for me this very second wave feminism kind of thing, which is we can have it all. We can do it all. And she also runs a medical mission trip to Haiti four times a year. She really, really, really gives of herself nonstop. And those are my mom's choices, and she's made those choices, and I, I am by no means rejecting those choices. But I did struggle in the early part of my life, of my adult life, to really question whether that was the role that I wanted to take on in my own life, in my own relationships. And with the help of therapy, <laughs> the answer became very clear to me, and that was no, that I, I wanted the freedom to iterate on the gender role that my mom had basically handed down to me that had been handed down from her mother and her mother and her mother, and figuring out what it looked like to live differently while still being a good, loving person in this world has been a challenge, but has really been the the crux of this journey I've been on for the past six years since really starting Bossed Up. Mm -hmm. So when you say you've been on the journey for the past six years, take us back to you know six years ago or what you consider sure. the beginning of this journey, what was happening, set the scene. So really it, it all started when I hit my own personal rock bottom burnout moment. I think we all have, or a lot of us have those moments when we realize the way I'm working is no longer working. And for me, that was when I was still in Rhode Island. I was working my butt off nonstop and recognized that I felt this huge amount of resentment, specifically for a bunch of students who I saw as I was driving through my alma mater's campus, who I was supposed to be, you know, quote, ahead of. I was supposed to be three years out from college. I was supposed to be you know, moving on up. And instead, I felt like I hadn't moved much at all, um, not just geographically, but emotionally. I felt on a, like I was on a hamster wheel. So for me, it started when I stopped continuing to just check off the checkboxes on my to-do list and started really asking myself, is this what I want for myself? And it felt greedy. It felt selfish. It felt a little entitled to say, you know, I know that there's a recession going on. Uh, but I'm going to walk away from a great job opportunity. I'm going to walk away from this person who says that they love me, even though it took me years to figure out that they weren't really in a position <laughs> to love somebody else because they had to do their own work. Um, but I left it all. I left Rhode Island with a executive director position on the table, and I left that relationship, which was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. Turns out leaving an addict is not an easy thing. Uh, for anybody. And I moved to Washington, D.C. to chase this dream of living the city that I always wanted to live in. I took a job that was related in the political field I'd started in. But instead of being about grassroots organizing, it was more focused on digital strategy and winning campaigns online. And it was during that time that I left work at work every day around 6 p.m. What a novelty. <laughs> and I spent the rest of my time voraciously consuming texts and really reading more than I'd read since college, all about understanding behavior change, habit formation, kind of geeking out on my own uh, self-prescribed uh, self uh, women's studies degree <laughs> and really learning more about how when you intersect – or when feminism intersects with 
behavior change and with making choices, bold choices about the lives we want to create for ourselves, especially in the career realm, learning a lot about myself. It it taught me a lot about how to be unapologetic in my pursuit of what I wanted in a world that teaches women to settle for whatever we can get. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to make a long story short, over that period of time, I also became physically stronger than I had been in my entire life. Signed up for my first ever 5K. That 5K led to a uh, 10K, which led to a half marathon, which led to a Olympic triathlon, which if I'm being honest with you, is the first and probably the last (laughs) Olympic (laughs) triathlon that I compete in. And with that physical strength came mental strength to take big risks. And that's when I, you know, two years after moving, I started Bossed Up to create the community of women that I needed when I was going through my own very rocky career transition and had wished that I had this one-stop shop to bring work, love, and wellness together in one community of women who were being unapologetic about going after what they wanted with a research-driven framework of understanding cognitive science, behavioral psychology, and political science, right? How, how sociology intersects with all of that. Yeah. So one of the things that I love about what you just shared, you know, you said that it was two years between when you left that relationship, you know, and that job opportunity moved, started something else. And then, you know, eventually then started your own thing. I think sometimes, you know, especially online, it's really easy to kind of glorify that overnight success thing. And then I just decided to change my life and my life changed. (laughs) And like, I think that's both true and not true because the change starts when you like decide that you're going to move in a new direction, right? Like the pivot can happen all at once. But, you know, two years is not an insignificant amount of time, right? To be right. Like, moved cities and, you know, obviously have uh, whatever the pain is of having left that relationship, right? There's just right. a lot going on there. And so I'm interested for you personally, were there any like stepping stones during those two years? Like what did sort of the evolution look like from, okay, I'm going to leave this job opportunity, you know, on the table. I'm going to leave this relationship. I'm going to move cities. Like then what? Well, I mean, you got to pay your bills, right? I, I, I'm not the kind of person who came from a family of entrepreneurs or who knew anything about capital and, and getting investors. <laughs> so this was a fully bootstrapped operation. So before I could take big risks, especially financial risks, like starting my own business and pursuing it full time, I had to learn how to make money. I had to learn how to manage my own finances because that is a form of self-care, And when I was living in Rhode Island, I I distinctly remember my ex-boyfriend encouraging me to take a job that was a significant pay cut because I'd found myself unemployed after the first midterm elections in the uh, Obama administration. They basically didn't need a Rhode Island state director (laughs) after that. And I took another job that was a significant pay cut, which left me in a financial – in a financially vulnerable position that created even more of a power dynamic between us because he was already 10 years my senior. And I just remember him saying, listen, you're going to take jobs over the course of your career. Some pay more, some pay less. This is totally normal. And years later, as I was negotiating my first ever raise when I took that job in D.C., I remember thinking how, you know, it wasn't bad or rude or selfish or greedy of me to expect to be paid all that I'm worth. And I was worth quite a lot (laughs) to my employer. And so at 26, I found myself 
finally, like, digging out of the $6,000 of breakup debt that I had incurred, which people don't talk enough about how expensive it is to break up with someone. Because <laughs> in my case, I was stuck in this lease that I couldn't get out of. I could not safely live with my ex at that time, given how much things had ex- had uh, been exacerbated in our relationship, and his addiction was really spiraling out of control. So I found myself couch surfing with friends and just in a very financially vulnerable position. Two years later, I was paying for my own one-bedroom apartment. I was saving to start my own business. I was debt-free or paying off my credit card debt and you know, still was working on those student loans. But I just remember thinking like, the stepping stone is getting my shit together financially. <laughs> the stepping stone is being okay with making money and seeing that as not a bad thing, but rather a a resource that would enable me to have the kind of impact that I wanted to have in this world. So that was a huge part of it. Yeah, there's always – I mean, I love talking about money. That's one of my favorite subjects yeah. to talk about, especially because there is so much emotional stuff. There's oftentimes a lot of family of origin stuff and, you know, what we were taught to believe about whether it's okay to have money, right, whether it's okay to talk about money. What does it mean if you're rich, if you're poor, if you're th- – like right. there's, there's stuff, right, that everyone has in their families. And, you know, I really, really loved what you said before about managing money as a form of self-care, right? And like totally. thinking about – actually, yeah, it's not only okay but empowering for me to look at this, to touch yeah. this every day to want to grow in this regard. There's nothing, you know, inherently bad or wrong about you if you want to make more money. Totally. And, you know, my family of origin story was, frankly, money is magical (laughs) because we never really had a lot of it. And then some days we would, you know, and then we would blow a lot of money. Um, And the magical part was that my grandparents had money. (laughs) So my grandparents funded a lot of things throughout my childhood that I didn't realize uh, which also could explain the cash flow issues that my parents had um, that left me in the dentist chair, you know, being unable to get the x-rays that I needed to get because we didn't have the cash on hand for it. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I just felt like learning to budget, learning to save, that was a big part of my healing process because I was pushing myself in a variety of arenas, athletically, financially, in terms of how to articulate what I wanted break down these big, seemingly impossible goals into tinier steps, making that that seemingly impossible goal much more feasible, and then doing things I'd never done before that I hadn't seen people in my life do before made me feel invincible and made me feel so much more tolerant of risk-taking. And it was a huge part of me developing my own boss identity, which is this concept of, you know, like you can we can all develop confidence through strategic risk-taking and then gauging the response that the world has to those risks, you know, those risks that we take. So I started to see myself as very much in the driver's seat of my life for the first time, really. Mm -hmm. Do you remember what uh, a couple of the first steps that you took when you were trying to get your financial life together? The first was getting a budget together on a Excel spreadsheet. And I remember – and this, I mean, Google Docs spreadsheet, really. I remember crunching the numbers when I was stuck in that lease with my ex-boyfriend, wondering why I was always feeling behind financially. And I realized that my income, which was low because I had just taken a huge pay cut, and the lease that I'd signed, which I was basically pressured into signing after telling my boyfriend at the time that I did not want to live with him anymore, that this wasn't working – um, I, I still can't really fathom how I got persuaded into signing that lease. But I was very much 
under his spell. You know what I mean? I was I was a different person than I am today, and I was not I was not advocating for what I wanted. I was hoping, begging, pleading for other people in my life to approve of my behavior. And so I signed this lease, and I remember about six months in, when things were really hitting the fan, I crunched the numbers and realized I had a negative cash flow. There was no way I could afford half of this lease. And I hadn't really, I hadn't done the math before. (laughs) And it was then that I realized, okay, something really big has to change. And money was a good place to start because I had, after I moved to D.C., like I mentioned, I had thousands of dollars in credit card debt that I had to find my way out of. And that was priority number one. Yeah. After that debt got paid off, what was your priority? Like, I'm interested in also people's like, uh, like progressive goals. And I think finances is an interesting way to talk about that, right? Like first goal, make a budget. Second goal, pay off this debt. Like what kind of happened as you grew after that? Well, then it's funny because looking back, I was living kind of wastefully. But once I had paid off my credit cards, I felt like, all right, I got, I got money coming in. I have this great job. You know, I could leave work at work every day, but I was making more money than my parents had ever really made. And so there I was, a senior digital political strategist at 25, 26 years old, living alone in a not-super-cheap one-bedroom apartment in D.C. And I was eating out pretty often. I was, you know, I was investing in my own lifestyle is how I like to put it. And about a year in, maybe a year and a half – as I was starting to crystallize this concept of Bossed Up and, oh, maybe I'd like to start this as a real business one day, I started to see all the opportunities around me to save more money. So I downsized to a two-bedroom walk-up that was rent-controlled that I then went on to live in for the next four and a half years, which I loved. But just in that one move and by reducing my expenses, instead of paying off credit card debt, I just tightened my belt a little bit and realized I could have just as much fun without blowing tons of money. And that enabled me to save up enough of a nest egg to quit my job, pursue Bossed Up full time. And the other story that we'll probably get into is the fact that three months later, I found myself back to square one and had to get a job. (laughs) And for the first two years of my company's existence, it was a side hustle. Uh, I had to go back to work and and fund it in a more sustainable way. Okay, yeah, I definitely want to hear more about this. (laughs) So first, um, do you remember how much you had saved before you quit your job? I had about $18,000 saved, which was a bigger sum of money than I'd ever seen before in Mm -hmm. any of my accounts ever, other than in the negative. (laughs) Okay. So you had $18,000 saved. You quit your job. You say, I'm going to go all in on this company. And then what happens? Well, guess what happened? Two weeks later, I said, you know what? I should do my taxes, thinking, like always, I will have a tax refund. But as it turns out, like many a freelancer has to learn the hard way, that prior year I had been doing digital strategy consulting work on the side in addition to my full-time W-2 job. So I had made more money than ever before and – Turns out I owed the government more money than ever before. So my little nest egg of 18000 was cut in half. And I had an entire day of just crying about it <laughs> because all of a sudden everything I'd been saving for – and this is you know, beyond the point of return to my day job. I had already very much quit. Uh, I realized, wow, that, that cushion was actually cut in half. And it was a total rookie mistake from a, an accounting and tax revenue standpoint, but – Sometimes that's just how you learn. (laughs) 
Yeah, I mean, I think that's often how you learn. <laughs> yeah, it was brutal. It was brutal. I just remember feeling incredibly vulnerable and then incredibly motivated to make this company stick. And it didn't. So, you know, the first ever thing that I did was at the time I had a co-founder. Um, her name is Simone. I talk about her a little bit in the book. She's a lovely, brilliant person. She was working in cybersecurity and making you know, six figures plus and had no interest in stepping away from her day job. And I was fine with that because I was happy to run operations and pursue the curriculum development work that I was really obsessed with and was so excited about what was happening. She was in law school. I figured she could apply some of her legal know-how to help us get up and running. And she really advocated to be a co-founder. So I was, I was open to it. I was excited about having the company uh, in, in launching our company. And we hosted our first ever Bossed Up Boot Camp, which is a weekend-long training program for women navigating career transition. And by all intents and purposes, it was a huge success. We had a net profit at the end of the weekend. Everybody was really excited about how the company could grow from there. And I still host that program five times a year. It's still one of the most popular things I do. But the day after that program – it became really clear to both Simone and I that this wasn't going to work, that we had to – we had very different visions for how the company would grow from there. So within two weeks, we actually went on a vacation together and then signed a dissociation agreement, meaning we broke up. We, like, had a business lady divorce. I had to pay out half of the profits, basically half of my net worth <laughs> to Simone to buy out her – equity in the company, and I was broke again. <laughs> uh, and my nest egg was like non-existent. So I got a political job that sent me halfway, or not even halfway, that sent me all the way across the country to Portland, Oregon. And for the next three and a half months, as I worked on a campaign out there, I ran bossed up on the side. And it was very kind of depressing and lonely, to be honest. It was a really dark period in, in the history of my company. Yeah, there's. Uh, I'm, I'm so grateful for your honesty. I think there's just so much in this of like one step forward, two steps back, one step forward. <laughs> yeah, two, but it, that's so relatable. And I, obviously, sure, that's not some people. Some people are on more of a linear path, right? Sure. It is kind of step one, step two, step three. But more often than not, I think your story or some version of that is what is more totally. common, right? And so I think, you know, when you were saying that that was kind of a dark time, did you feel disappointed? Was that like, what were you kind of struggling with as yeah. far as I quit my job to do this thing? Oh, and now I'm broke and now I have to go get this job again. <laughs> it was quite a roller coaster. And I can only laugh about it genuinely now because I know that it all worked out. <laughs> so even when I was writing about the story in the book, I was saying to myself, you know, current Emily laughs at the at the distraught and, you know, the drama that I was going through at the time because I was so low when things were low and you were so elated when things were high. It's such a emotional whiplash when you're first starting a new venture. Now things have very much leveled out and I'm very genuinely pleased with how things are going that I can sort of laugh looking back at how melodramatic a time that was. But then Emily, you know, past Emily would be very upset with me. <laughs> If she knew that I was laughing at her pain because it was this internal battle that was waging. One part of me felt a gravitational pull, this inevitability to what I was starting because it felt like every experience in my entire life had led me to this moment where I needed to create 
this community. And that's what passion is, right? I mean, it's not really negotiable. It's you've been pulled. You feel called. You have to do this work. Uh, And then the other half of me was how the hell am I supposed to overcome the embarrassment factor, much less the financial factor of how the hell to operationalize my vision? Um, Because, you know, you, you sort of think that your failures are very public at the time because they feel like the center of your universe. But what that experience actually taught me is that no one's really paying that close of attention. <laughs> you know, nobody knew that, oh, I had a co-founder and then three months later we broke up, but the company continued on. No one really cared. Um, sure, there were people who raised their eyebrow like, wait a minute, weren't you doing this before? Why are you out in Portland? And I felt this need to you know, explain myself to those folks. But the critics were few and far between. Um, The bigger critic was myself, trying not to beat myself up about not doing this perfectly because I was following a roadmap that, you know, we didn't know where it was going. Mm -hmm. So really getting clear with myself over what what was I trying to create and what was a sustainable path to making it happen? Because what I did know is that I could not burn out trying to start a community to help women avoid burnout. <laughs> the irony would be too rich, you know? <laughs> it's like that I need to be sustainable in my approach to this. So I need to have, for once in my life, I need to have a little bit of patience with myself. Yeah. I think it's such a good reminder that no one cares about us as much as we think they do. And that's, I mean, it <laughs> right? really, and I don't mean that in like a nobody cares about you, you don't matter type of way. Of course right. we matter. But it's, it's so true that, you know, we are the center of our own universe and something that feels like a really big deal or feels like everyone's going to have an opinion about it. People mostly don't notice or don't care. Right. <laughs> no, they have their own exactly, shit going on. Exactly. Exactly. It's kind of a good reminder in this age of social media that you can come up with your own highlight reel. I know it messes with our perception because we, th- we only see everyone else's highlight reel. But you don't have to share things that feel too raw, that feel too vulnerable. Like you can keep some shit to yourself. That is okay. You, you deserve privacy when you're going through the weeds, when yeah. you're really struggling to figure things out. Yeah. I, I also really like, you know, in hearing stories like yours, that this embrace of a messier approach, right? Like, right. sure, maybe the ideal story is, you know, this happened and then this happened and then fairy tale. But, you know, there's something about it allowing it to be messier that makes things or makes it more possible to take risks. And it makes you more attuned to market economics. Like, if you're starting a business, part of your job is to figure out how the world reacts to what you're putting out there and to listen very carefully to what people want and what they love and what they don't want and what they don't love. And if your ego is wrapped up in all of that, you're not going to have the eyes and the ears and the heart to to look at this data and say, well, what is it that people are really responding to that I can double down on? And oh, wow, nobody cared about my Women's History Month series that I spent all of this time writing about? Hmm, that's good data for me to think about how I approach Women's History Month next year. You know what I mean? Like you have to have something of this Buddhist detachment to the outcome. You can enjoy the process and get into flow and 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 do your best to make what you make and make it well. But when the world rejects some of it or embraces some of it, you've got to have a bit of detachment from a business standpoint to just be willing to take feedback and pivot when necessary. 
Yeah, what's helped you to cultivate some of that detachment? You know, because you mentioned that this work was felt like a passion for you and felt like a calling. And I think it's really easy then to almost over-identify sometimes with our work yeah. and to be really intertwined with it in a way that, especially like you said, when it comes to ego, isn't healthy. And I've struggled with this and I, I think a lot of folks have as well. And being able to have some distance and to not like turn that passion into your identity where, you know, the make or break it success of that like determines your self-worth. What's helped you with that? It's a really tough question because it seems easy once you have it <laughs> figured out. It's a hard thing to teach because I was doing a lot of reading. I mean, literally Buddhist texts. I can't actually – I'm trying to recall the name of one book in particular. I'll try to look it up um, for the show notes for this. But literally immersing myself in some Buddhist philosophy was helpful Two, I would say, is surrounding myself with a community of courage, which I describe in my book as this isn't like a mentorship circle. This is a circle of people who are going to give it to you straight, who are going to call you on your bullshit, who are going to help you identify when you're getting all wrapped up in your ego and are going to love you unconditionally when you're killing it and your head's getting awfully big because you're killing it and when it feels like your goals are crushing you. You know, instead of the other way around. So you have to be with people, including your childhood friends and your family members and some of those people who knew you before you ventured out into this exciting endeavor and have them help you stay grounded. And the final thing I'll say, which is a book that I'm reading now and very into, which is called The Nature Fix, is staying physically grounded in nature. Because when I was taking big risks professionally, I knew that I couldn't do what I'd done in the past, which was completely sacrifice my physical fitness and my physical well-being for the work. Every time I do that, every time I detach from bicycle riding or running or yoga or hiking and climbing and skiing, whenever I detach from nature too much, I am not – my head is not on straight. It's just not screwed on straight. And there's a burgeoning field of science that shows nature in itself has healing properties for our mental and physical well-being. So mm -hmm. a lot of it had to do with just having other identities within myself as a runner, as a volleyball player, as a friend, as a music lover, as an amateur musician <laughs> that I could turn to when Emily, the CEO, was not having a good day. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I've been thinking about, you know, this idea of in, like creating intentional community and, you know, the relationships that you cultivate. And on one hand, one of the things that I absolutely love is connecting with, you know, other people, particularly other women who host podcasts or who do who work in like a similar field. Because as you know, there's nothing quite like being able to talk to someone else who knows what it's like, you know, when <laughs> yeah. you know, this tech disaster happens or, you know, this podcast thing or, you know, just talking about those specific things and having that kind of support is wonderful. And on the flip side, I also find that that I need to have people in my circle who their work is completely different from mine and what totally. we're bonding over has nothing to do with that. Like they love me and want to be around me, like right. regardless of what I'm doing for work. Not to say that they're not supportive, but they don't really care. They don't yeah. listen to the podcast. You know, and like it's really refreshing to you totally like, get it. We don't talk about work, you know? Oh my God. It's so important. And I used to think – I used to really not understand that or value that. I used to think, oh my gosh, I'm this ambitious, city-dwelling, yuppie career lady What's with my best friend from from elementary school who is, you know doesn't think or talk about her work unless she's at work and is living in suburban Connecticut where we grew up and having her first child? I did not understand the value of relationships with people with whom I differ 
until relatively recently. Mm -hmm. And I think it's so important to have friends with different sets of values, like total different sets of values, not only for our political well-being, for this entire country's future, but just for your own perspective. Because especially when when I was working in politics and anyone who's ever worked in media or one of those 24-hour news cycle type jobs, you get so wrapped up in your own universe, you totally lose perspective. And when I was in D.C., I actually met my now husband when we were both playing beach volleyball, which is a domain I feel very capable in because at the time I was in the best shape of my life and I had played college volleyball uh, throughout my collegiate years. So this is a a domain in which I was crushing it and felt very confident when I met this guy. So he was into that version of me. You know what I mean? He was into a very confident, swaggered out version of Emily. And having met him there, I didn't even get his career at the time. He was working in corporate architecture. I'd never met an architect before. I didn't really know what his job was about. I was like, what do you mean you live in D.C. and you don't really follow politics? What gives? And that relationship has clearly proven to be one that I'm very invested in, but has been so instrumental in providing perspective and fun and delight even when you're pursuing hard shit. Like -hmm. it does not need to be so heavy It doesn't need to be the sole thing in your life, the sole basket in which you're putting all of your emotional eggs so that if this basket doesn't work out, your whole identity is shattered. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I want to back up a little bit. You mentioned uh, burnout a couple of times and yeah. you know that being something obviously that you have experienced and then you said, hey, I can't burn out building a company, right, to help like women with burnout. Um, can we talk about burnout a little bit as a topic? Is that Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I'd love to. I feel like that's one of those words that gets thrown around a lot and not really defined, if that makes sense. Yes. Um, can you share, you know, so when you're talking about burnout, what do you mean? Thank you for the question. It is the most important question you can possibly ask about burnout because in today's day and age, it is used very casually as a synonym for exhaustion when that is not at all what it is. You know, I've heard people say that they're burnt out on certain trends. You know, like I'm so burnt out on the pumpkin spice latte. It's like that is not not what we're talking about. Burnout, in fact, is a very serious thing, which is why it should be clear that when we talk about burnout, or at least when I talk about burnout, I'm talking about a mentally or a clinically diagnosable mental health disorder that the World Health Organization defines as a state of chronic stress that's really characterized by its symptoms, which is a lack of agency, not seeing yourself as being in the driver's seat of your own life, not seeing your own actions as an indicator of your outcomes, uh, as chronic exhaustion and overwork, which we all kind of get. We know what that means. But then also a lack of feelings of effectiveness, this not seeing yourself as making progress in any realm of your life, even when that is not true. So even when you are doing a good job at work, not seeing yourself as making any progress or being very effective. So it's, it's a gateway diagnosis that can also lead to more serious and difficult to treat uh, mental health disorders like chronic anxiety, which we know in, is prevalent amongst young women and girls in particular in our country, and depression, which can be deadly. 
So when we talk about burnout, we have to acknowledge that it is an, a sign, a very serious sign that we are headed down a troubling road that can lead to even more disastrous outcomes. But the good news is that burnout is more easy to reverse. It's less calling for uh, medical or uh, I should say prescription intervention, and it's more about reclaiming your agency over your own life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So some of those symptoms that you just mentioned, can you share maybe one or two examples of how those were manifesting for you, like in your life, in your work, when you were burned out, what did that look like? Yeah. I mean, honestly, so a lack of agency and not feeling like I was in charge of my own life could be illustrated by signing that lease when I didn't want to, feeling pressured to live a certain way, be a certain way, and that pressure being at odds with my core values as a human being. Chronic exhaustion was evident in my overwork. So every single day I felt compulsive about needing to be on 24-7 because I felt like we, as the newly elected Obama administration in 2009, had just been elected on hope and change, and we had a lot to deliver on. So I considered myself part of saving the world by day and saving my boyfriend's life by night, and that left me working 24-7. So that chronic exhaustion manifested in the form of a lack of sleep, uh, a lack of rest and renewal, and this stress that never felt like it was going to come to a close. Mm -hmm. It's that feeling of never having an end to your to-do list. It just constantly being ever running and never feeling like you have permission to take a break. I'm feeling very seen in this moment. <laughs> Are you feeling a little called out? <laughs> no, it's good. It's really good. Why do you think that burnout like this tends to hit women so hard? I have a, a, a thesis that I basically posit in my book that I call the martyrdom mindset. And I think it's this convergence of two very troubling things that tends to manifest amongst women in a very unique way. First, we have something that's not related to gender, which is the Protestant work ethic in the United States in particular, which is, you know, our founding fathers and the people who settled this country, the prudes, really, the pilgrims, who were a very not fun-loving bunch of folks, to be honest. They believed that your worthiness, your inherent worthiness as a human being was measured by your work product and that you are as worthy as you are productive. Now, granted, that's a point of pride for many of us in the United States because we are the most productive, not the most efficient, but we are the most productive country on earth, and it has served our global interests well, right? We've pretty much been crushing it globally uh, for quite a long time. But they also believe that leisure was evil, that um, – what is it, that that saying that they had that comes straight out of the Protestants, which was idle hands are the devil's workshop. They really and truly believed that any and all leisure time was inherently, fundamentally evil. So you have the Protestant work ethic saying your work is your worth, leisure is evil. And then you layer that on with all the gender stuff since the real mass introduction of women of all races and classes entering the workforce post-World War II. And you get, okay, women are supposed to be nice and caring and nurturing. And we all know that nowadays women can be productive in the workforce too. So we have this sort of 
expectation that gender stereotypes, however dated they are, ask women to be nurturing and caring and sweet and kind, mix that in with all the Protestant work ethic stuff, and you get what I call the martyrdom mindset, this idea that you are only as worthy as you are sacrificing your own personal well-being. Mm. And that stuff just, it just crops up in society, in media, in our families, in the way we teach little girls and 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 young women and women of all ages, really, to always be giving of ourselves because that's what makes you a nice lady. And that is super problematic in a hyper-productive work culture that's now accelerated uh, in the age of information. Yeah, this reminds me of something that I think I heard you say in another interview. Um, you said it's still a rebellious act in this world to be a woman who dares to take care of herself. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Audre Lorde summed it up best. Audre Lorde being, of course, the queer, radical, black woman poet who said self-care is not selfish. It's an act of political warfare, you know, especially in a world that tells people of color and women that they are less than in a million different ways. You know, it really and truly is a very radical thing to say, I'm going to take care of myself, even in a world that tells me I'm not worthy of that. Yeah. So going back to what you were saying about burnout, that, you know, one of the good things is that it is easier to reverse, right? Or at least like right. possible to reverse. I'd yep. love to hear a little bit about that, like what you've learned, you know, specifically either about how to overcome it or how to prevent it or, you know, what's worked for you or what's what have you yeah. seen work for folks that you know? Well, I love this question because it. I want to answer your question first and then also illustrate this through uh, a recent story that went viral in BuzzFeed that I have a serious problem with, which was all about millennial burnout. But first, let me answer the, the question, which is the number one way I have seen and, and done this myself, but also helped many countless women break out of the cycle that is burnout is to first identify your personal burnout triggers. Now, oftentimes those burnout triggers come in the form of um, what makes you feel like you have a lack of agency. Is it your micromanaging your boss? Is it your controlling partner? Is it the very stringent academic schedule that your work operates around? You know, what are the, the constraints, the triggers that lead you to feeling burnt out? Um, the second is around rest. Am I resting frequently? Am I chronically underslept because I have a newborn in my house? Like, what are the burnout triggers that revolve around rest? And the final two, after agency rest, is purpose and community. What leads me to feel triggered around not pursuing my purpose? Sometimes I have women who come through my doors at Bossed Up who have high-paying salaries, all the flexibility in the world to have work-life balance, but they are so burnt out because they feel like every single day they get up to make someone who's already quite wealthy just a little bit wealthier, and they have a lack of purpose in their life. And I say, well, why don't you – become the Girl Scout troop leader in your neighborhood. <laughs> you know, why don't you run for office with your spare time? Or why don't you find a way to, to give back? It doesn't have to be your profession, but you need to pursue your passion or you're going to burn out from a lack of purpose-driven work. And then, of course, community. A lot of us feel isolated. Loneliness is a global epidemic of sorts right now. So are you feeling a burnout triggers manifesting in the form of isolation and loneliness? Once you can identify the specific habits or constraints on your time or in your, your lifestyle that lead you to feeling burnt out, then you can begin to make micro adjustments, change one thing this week, change one thing every day this month 
to take your control back because it often stems from a mindlessness of not recognizing the power we do have to make a friend date once a week or to uh, talk with our micromanaging boss about how we can work together differently. Only once you really identify those triggers can you start making changes upon them. Yeah, that idea of what can I change? What do I have control over? Because I think, and I mean, this is obviously just from my own personal experience of periods of time when I have felt similarly to what you're describing. It's I get stuck in this sort of all or nothing, black and white mentality of, Mm -hmm. you know, everything is so stressful. You know, the only thing that would make it better is like quitting everything, right? Exactly. And really, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. Well, that's exactly what bothered me about this viral BuzzFeed piece is burnout actually makes you feel helpless. That's the thing about burnout. It's this spiral of helplessness and victim, seeing yourself as a victim of circumstance. And that feeds into a lack of agency, right? When you say, all of this is happening to me. Life is just coming at me. I have no control, no power, no say. It's self-fulfilling in a way. And this woman who wrote, let me get her name right, Um, Anne Helen Peterson, who's a BuzzFeed reporter, she wrote this incredibly long piece about burnout, and she called it millennial burnout in particular. And I sympathize with her because she clearly was writing this piece from a deep place of burnout. But here's my problem with it. She said, the problem with holistic, all-consuming burnout is that there's no solution to it. You can't optimize it to make it end faster. You can't see it coming like a cold and start taking the burnout prevention version of Airborne. And I wrote a piece in response saying, you know, peddling that kind of hopelessness is not only wrong, it's dangerous. Because when we proliferate this idea that burnout is not changeable, you put people into a reasonable state of depression, right? That that spiral of hopelessness is very dangerous, but it is not true. Does that make sense? Yeah, it totally makes sense. And this idea that, you know, in order to make things better, what you said before, like doing one thing at a time, that to me seems so much more realistic than I'm going to quit all of this and do something new, which first of all, might not be the answer. And second of all, is logistically not possible for most people, right? right? And, you know, I think the other thing that I want to underscore that you said about, you know, you can find purpose and passion in something that's outside of your work. I think, you know, for me and for other people that I know and that I've had this conversation with, it can feel really isolating to feel like, why am I the only one who doesn't know what my like, <laughs> right? you know, capital T one thing is, right? This is my thing. Yes. And not everyone has a thing. Some people have, you know, a laser focus. This is what I'm passionate about. This is also how I make money. And that's great if that aligns. And for a lot of folks, it doesn't. They're multi-passionate or, you know, the thing that they do sustainably to pay the bills is different from this thing that they love right. on the side. And like making more space in the conversation for that to be okay. And, you know, it's not like if you don't find your absolute dream job, like then you're going to have like no purpose and passion forever. Like I think that's a really unhealthy myth as well. I think I need to write an op-ed for somebody somewhere that's called Remember Hobbies? (laughs) (laughs) Because it's like, what the hell happened to our hobbies? You know, now we have activities or side hustles or self-improvement. It's like, do something you love just for fun and you don't have to be great at it and you don't want to have to go pro, you know? And fulfilling your a, a sense of purpose it kind of feels to me like a way to fuel your soul. It's not about filling a resume. But here's the thing. I can almost hear the privilege in what I'm saying right now. <laughs> I'm sure somebody listening to me right now is like, yeah, nice for you, lady, because you have the time. You have uh, leisure, which is at a premium for most of us in this day and age. So I say all this to point out that 
like you said, you don't need to go full-time on your passion. It's not even accessible to many people who are just trying to make ends meet. But I think if we actually designed a country that saw leisure and rest and personal sustainability as human rights, that we would live in a very different-looking country. Mm -hmm. And a friend of mine, Jill Filipovich, actually wrote the book about this called The H-Spot, The Feminist Pursuit of Happiness, in which he essentially makes this public policy case for leisure um, as an antidote to our burnout work culture. Yeah, I mean, that was something that I was thinking about when you were talking about personal agency of, and I don't know that I have a tight specific question, so maybe this isn't really somewhere that we pivot to, but I'm interested in sort of personal agency versus systemic forces, you know, when it comes to these topics. That's the biggest tension in my work. It's the biggest underlying tightrope that I'd like to tap dance on. It's really tough. I, uh, I read a lot about people who say it's just one or the other. Sheryl Sandberg, lean in. It's all you. You know, take it, run with it. You got this, girl. You know, lean in. Don't lean out. If you lean out, it's on you. And I think that's off. And then I read Anne Marie Slaughter, who writes about the unfinished business of the feminist revolution and how national affordable childcare reform is the key and how a national uh, system of, of care and parental leave policies make us such a weird anomaly in the whole globalized world. Yeah, all of that is true, but it is not one or the other. And I'm very sick of being forced into this binary false choice that is either personal agency or systemic injustice that we have to tackle. I think the answer lies, like most things, somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I tried to write my book from a very practical, tactical, and research-driven perspective of Here's the unjust, BS, biased world that we live in, and here's what you can do about it right now. (laughs) I don't have the patience to say – to write a book about lobbying Congress, and I don't think it's okay to just throw up your hands and say systemic forces are holding me back. I think we need to look bias and injustice straight in the face and persevere anyway. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Is there anything – I mean, and obviously I know that you go into this in your book – that you like an example that you can give of what you just talked about of like yes injustice sure. and also here's something you can do negotiation advice right assertive communication writ large of any kind always puts women in this double bind especially women of color who have to deal with the angry black woman trope pretty much any woman who's being assertive is more likely to be seen as less likable and less capable than a man who's saying the exact same thing. Because after all, being assertive is part of being a leader. So if we're telling women to be more like a leader, to lean in, to advocate for themselves, they're going to have to be assertive about it, and then they're going to get some shade in response. Now, should you have to adapt your style? Hell no. You should be, as a woman, treated equally and perceived equally as your male counterparts when you're negotiating your salary or being assertive or speaking up at a meeting because you dissent from the group think. Is that what happens every day? Nah. That's not, unfortunately, the world we live in. You're still going to run into some bias BS in how people perceive you. So I have an entire chapter in my book about how to hack into our biased world to soften the blow, essentially. To, 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 uh, it's almost like I describe it as um, managing your perception in a biased world. So, for instance, one of the research-driven – tactics that I suggest is leading with your intent before your content, which has been shown through research. If I'm going to say, you know, hey, I really disagree about the decision we're making here, and I think we need to go back to the data to look at 
you know, how we're going to proceed in, in the client's best interest. If I say it like that, I'm more likely to be not well-received than if I lead with my intention, which is, listen, I want to make sure that here at such-and-such corporation, as a team that prides itself on, on putting the client's interests first, that we're really living up to that community value of ours, which is why I, I have to say I disagree with how we're proceeding. And I think we have to go back to the data to take a better look at, at, at the research behind this decision-making process. Mm-hmm. And it softens the blow in that it makes you more likely to be heard, less likely to be given shade, for lack of a better word, but still allows you to get your point across. Now, that is a bunch of emotional labor and verbal jujitsu that we shouldn't have to do as women. But I like to say, until we can change that world, you know, as we lift, as we climb, this is what I advise women to do when it, when it really matters. When you're advocating for your raise, your promotion, your job, use every tool in your toolbox. Yeah, I'd like to talk about that toolbox a little bit. I know earlier in the conversation you mentioned the time where you negotiated your first raise. Yeah. And obviously, I'm sure you've done other negotiating since then. Can you share either like something else from that toolbox that has worked well for you or maybe even like a mistake you made that you would do differently next time? Now I'm freakish about negotiation. I love a good negotiation. <laughs> now I, I wrote a post. Actually, it's not even out yet, but I, I, I'm producing a podcast and blog post about how I regularly call up my utilities and cable company and, and New York Times subscription to try to negotiate a better price <laughs> because it keeps your negotiation skills sharp, you know what I mean, which is a good best practice that I found. If I can negotiate at the farmer's market, I'm more able to negotiate with a client. <laughs> but let's see. Some of my – I mean I could geek out about negotiation all day. One of my best practices is – and this has worked well for me on numerous occasions, is to ditch I and go with we whenever possible, to really draw a communal benefit from what you're negotiating on on behalf of. So for instance, um, if I'm asking a client for a certain – a $15,000 keynote speaker fee and they really want to bring me in because they don't know anybody else who talks about burnout from a feminist and intersectional feminist perspective – but they don't have the budget, I can negotiate – let's say I'm negotiating with them about how to find additional funding at different departments at the university or how to find a a way to make this of mutual benefit to us by sharing email lists or promoting my book or what have you. If I can say, all right, how can we make this happen? How can we move this ball forward? You know, I'm in it to win it with you. Putting your quote-unquote opponent – in this negotiation situation on the same side of the table as you can bring out this communal or just remind them of the, the, the spirit of collective conclusion that you're looking to draw, right? It can remind them that we want you, I want to work with you, how do we make this happen? And just using that we word, which I use, I almost overuse it as like the royal we, is such a good habit to get into, uh, because I, during a negotiation, especially as a woman, starts to make you seem really selfish. And yeah. it's not right, but that's how it comes across. Yeah. Uh, this reminds me of similar, you know, romantic relationship advice that I have heard about, you know, being careful of it. You- in situations where it's not you versus your partner, but it's like you and your partner versus the issue. Yeah. And, like that little pivot, you know, resonates to me with what you're saying. Totally. I mean, the reality is that women – we negotiate all the time. 
You know, we negotiate with our partners. We would negotiate with kids in the cereal aisle. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we negotiate with our own schedules, with the own, our own like space-time continuum. Um, so I think there's this undue, unwarranted stress that comes with the more formal kinds of negotiation that women are up against. But it's well warranted in some instances because the world does not look kindly upon assertive women. So how we how we wade through that without losing our commitment to advocate for ourselves is a tricky thing. It's basically like we can't allow all the microaggressions in the world that tell us to be quieter, to dim our light, to be more nice and polite and less selfish and less assertive. We can't actually allow that to sink in <laughs> because there is no perfect way to ask for a raise or to negotiate or advocate on your own behalf that's going to please everybody. So you've got to at least please yourself. Yeah. And, you know, I think your point too, it's like, there's something really realistic in it. Like, should we have to do all of these mental gymnastics? No. Right. And just kind of saying, well, I shouldn't have to do this. so I'm not going to like, that doesn't actually get you what you want results wise. Totally. And that's what I have. That's where I have some issues with folks who only look at solving the systemic problem. It's like, I don't, I'm not a systemic person. I might be operating in a system that is full of injustice, but that doesn't change my day tomorrow, you know? That doesn't change my perception of having any sense of control or autonomy over my own life. So I set out to write a book, and really, throughout Bossed Up, all of our training is delivered in this light, which is to acknowledge systemic injustice, especially with an intersectional approach as a, as a woman who presents white, even though I'm very much Latina, um, but have all the white privilege going for me, that we have to acknowledge that my feminism, my pursuit of justice in my life is different and in some ways easier than my fellow woman who happens to be black or happens to be of color. You know, so it's important to acknowledge the systemic bias and yet provide solutions on the micro level, personal mm -hmm. tactics and strategies for how you can take some of your power back right now. Mm -hmm. What's one of the things that you most love teaching at your boot camps lately? Assertive communication has always been one of my faves. Um, but let's see. Besides assertive communication, which I, I present that module all over the country with different companies and universities who want to help women own their power to own their own voice and advocate for themselves like leaders do uh, in a world that tells us not to. <laughs> but the other one that I've been really geeking out on brings us back to that boss identity conversation, which is – Helping women feel entitled to their own vision, to their own audacious goals for their life. Because there's a million different messages we receive about not, not having them. <laughs> like, for instance, love and relationships. It's always been a huge part of my personal relationship to my power and autonomy over my own life and career. So when I set out to start Bossed Up, I said at every Bossed Up Boot Camp, we're going to have a licensed relationship coach, and that will be part of the program because you can't come to Bossed Up Boot Camp to reset your whole career and, and get clear on where you're headed next and how you're going to get there and gain some new tools without acknowledging the role that relationships, platonic, familial, romantic, and otherwise, play in our lives. And, you know, we've been told we're not allowed to have relationship goals other than, like, 
Jada and Will Smith, <laughs> Jada Pinkett Smith and Will Smith, right? Or Barack and Michelle Obama. Um, we're not really told that we have every right to say, you know what I'd like more of in my relationship or you know what I'd like in my next relationship. And I love providing this framework for women to feel entitled to set all kinds of goals for themselves, not just about money and power and influence in our careers, but also well-being, um, creative pursuits, and yes, romantic pursuits too. Okay, then that makes me need to ask you, what are your current relationship goals or a current relationship goal that you want to share? Ooh. (laughs) So uh, let's see. Every – I'm blushing already. Okay. Every New Year's, uh, Brad the Boo and I set New Year's resolutions to give kind of a thematic vibe to our whole year. And some of these resolutions are specific to one person or the other. Like last year, I took my mom back to her home country of Colombia, um, which was the first time I'd ever been there. We went on an eight-day trip for her 60th birthday. It was the first time she'd been back to Bogota since she immigrated to the United States at age 13. Wow. So that was a major highlight of last year's theme, which was year of fun. (laughs) This year, our theme is moving on up. And it has to do with the fact that we just ventured into real estate investing. And one of our goals, there's a lot of them that I cannot share um, because there's lots about my relationship that I keep private. But let me think. One of our goals is to renovate the kitchen in our house. Which is a big project, uh, which is going to take money and time and effort and energy. But then another kind of goal is just to have have like recurring friend hangouts because we do a good job of having date nights pretty regularly. But I've been feeling a little bit lacking in my girlfriend game lately. And Brad just came back from a weekend with his college buddies we hasn't seen some of in 10 years up in the Rocky Mountains. They went snowmobiling and skiing, and it was so nice to see him have this really special weekend away with some of his friends. And so I recently started a Women Crush Wednesday night meetup just with all of my friends here in Colorado, you know, of different different industries, different places in our careers and lives, but just knowing that I have a recurring time to hang out with people in person that is very casual, has been a huge part of my objectives this year, which is to invest in friendships. Yeah, two things about what you just said that I particularly love. The first, you know, when you were saying there's some of the relationship goals that I don't want to share because I choose to keep that private, I feel like that is so important for people to say because, I mean, this has come up in plenty of other episodes of the podcast. It's something that I think and care about a lot, this idea that honesty and privacy can exist together. Right. You know, that you can share and give of yourself honestly, whether that's online or through your work or through other things. And also, everyone isn't entitled to know everything about us, you know? And I think, you know, especially for someone like me who works in this, like, honesty, real talk space, and I value those kind of things, it does not mean that we can't have privacy and that we can't keep things to ourselves. And I think it's a really beautiful boundary when, you know, someone says, nope, that's actually not up for discussion. Like, I love that (laughs) so much. Yeah. I mean, every year we have sex goals and – I love being a very sex-positive person, but I'm not in the sex-positivity online space. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so it's, it's really fun to, like, collectively come up with what our goal is for the year, but that is 
not something I discuss publicly. Yeah. And I think that that's amazing, you know, and the, <laughs> the other thing about what you just said that I really like this idea that it is, you know, okay to desire more. I think, you know, a lot of what you and I are talking about seems to fall into this, like, hey, let's yeah. get out of the binary. You know, it has to be this or this, right? Right. The, and I, I see this a lot in, in this idea of kind of goals or desiring more that, you know, it seems to be this um, dichotomy of either practice gratitude and be content with what you have, right, or, right. you know, you're always striving and unhappy. And I think there's absolutely place for both, you know, for being grateful totally. and content and settling in and also having dreams, having, you know, unmet desires, wanting to level up. Yep. Like I think a real life incorporates both of those things. And that's okay in every area of our lives. It is okay to want more. It is okay mm-hmm. to want to upgrade. It's okay to, you know, have something that you're super grateful for and want to call more of that into your life. Totally. I'm so glad you picked up on that explicitly because it was the theme of last year's Life Tracker Planner. So geeking out over cognitive science and women in particular and what leads us to achieve long-term complicated goals caused me to actually come up with a proprietary goal tracking system. Last year, we turned it into a planner, and this year we released its second edition. But last year's theme, when you first opened the planner, was self-care plus ambition. You know, that you can actually embrace self-acceptance and self-care and self-love and be striving for more. Yeah. I mean, and I think this gets into the gender stereotyped place too of, you know, for the most part, people are not looking down on men for being ambitious. Right, right. You know, and so, you know, operating in that place. Um, You said earlier um, when talking about your career that you wanted it to be sustainable. Um, Mm. I'm interested to hear more about that because I think similarly to burnout, sustainable is one of those words that's used. And also, what does that mean? You know, same thing with like work-life balance. Like, okay, that's different things to different people. But so for you, what does a sustainable career look like? Yeah. So it's interesting because I think of it as being a gradient between – sacrifice versus suffering. I believe in short-term sacrifice for long-term gain. In fact, I think managing those short-term versus long-term desires is the key of all success and of all kinds of being able to achieve our long-term goals. I don't want to go for a run this morning, but if I do, I'll be better able to be healthier or, you know, live longer or be more flexible, whatever. You know, long-term versus short-term desires and managing your own desires is important. So I believe in short-term sacrifice. I do not believe in suffering for success. And so for me, it's really about intensity and duration. So for me, sustainable success is the kind of success that allows for periods of sprints in terms of work that are broken up by rest and renewal and not striving all the time. Um, And it, it requires a commitment to continuously checking in with myself. So I I know that there's lots of stuff that heads your way that you can't see coming, you know, a a surprise diagnosis or, um, you know, the arrival of a child or, you know, things happen, the loss of a job, the breakdown of your car, things happen. And those kinds of stressors are going to be part of life. But being committed to actually checking in with yourself and saying, what do I need to do to set myself up for sustainability this week is the the shift. Because if I am having a crisis at work or in life, and I can say to myself, okay, I need to move this if I can, or I need to ask for help here, or I need to build in time for rest and renewal in a really deliberate way, because this is going to be rough. I'm going to need my full capacity 
to make it through this interval of, of intensity in my career. Mm-hmm. And so it's really just about forecasting capacity in a really compassionate way. For you, when it comes to rest, renewal, what is rejuvenating for you? Interesting question. So I'm, I'm kind of an introverted extrovert in that I love being around people and I feed off of the energy of groups of people when I, when I speak in front of them and I'm on the road a lot. But if I'm being honest, when I feel depleted after public speaking or after being around lots of people, which drains me, you know, it's, it's, it's exciting and then it drains me. What I really need is quiet time in nature. And I really need regular exercise. I used to think of exercise as kind of a vanity thing, <laughs> as, uh, you know, something you do to lose weight or to look a certain way or to manage your own body or to be a certain kind of performer, athletic performance in particular. But now I've realized that when I feel really stressed out, it's because I haven't exercised in two days. And my body hates that. So even if it's just sitting at the reclining stationary bike in my hotel, you know, gym, because I'm on the road a lot as a public speaker, I get myself to that gym. I make time. I get up earlier, even if I'm barely conscious because I'm peddling myself to less stress. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I have to invest in regular fitness, even if it's just walking with my dog around the block midday when I'm working from home. Because my body needs to move in order for my brain to operate right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the introverted extrovert thing is interesting. I've been thinking lately about this idea of rest and, you know, what's actually like, what are the things that I actually feel better after doing them, right? Right. And, you know, I, I talk about this a lot that one of my favorite, like, personal forms of kind of in the moment self care, I love eating snacks in the bath while watching something on Netflix. That's like oh my, my favorite, like, peak Nicole <laughs> moment. Yeah. And I, I, I kind of, I don't have to dig deeper into everything. You can just like something because you like it. But I was interested in, like, why is this, like, my favorite? favorite end of the day thing. And I realized it's because I'm not talking and I Mm -hmm. am also quite extroverted. Obviously, I mean, I have conversations literally for a living, you know, and (laughs) most of my closest relationships, like the thing we have the most in common is that we like to do this. We like to dig at things. We like to go deep. You know, we like to talk about stuff and, you know, which is wonderful and nourishing and fabulous. And it's so nice to just like literally shut my mouth and stop talking. (laughs) Also, there's just something about being really true to your deepest desires and quirks that leaves you feeling like, oh, my God, I'm living my best life. You know? (laughs) It's like that cliche. Like, that's how I feel when I wear cowboy boots with dresses, which I try to do as often as possible. I truly feel like I am living the dream of my seven-year-old self who used to wear cowgirl boots with a little fringe on it because I hated socks. And so I would just wear, you know, cowgirl boots sockless with dresses and run wild, you know? And now I feel like whenever you can make your seven-year-old, your inner child happy, that is something to pay attention to and do more often. Yeah. And to pay attention to like, what are the situations or activities or like what's happening when you yeah. feel the most yourself? It's, it's just like the burnout trigger component. Becoming mindfully aware of what triggers your burnout, like, oh my gosh, that coworker of mine who snaps her bubblegum all day, every day, is going to drive me insane. But you don't really realize it until you identify what the hell is going on that's making you so on edge. Similarly, identifying when you feel peak you and, you know, rested and renewed and rejuvenated and just full of life is something to audit your life for so that you can bring more of it in. Because sometimes burnout, beating burnout isn't just about eliminating stress. 
it's also about incorporating rest and renewal proactively. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think for me, something that's helpful is remembering that what I need changes over time, whether it's like at different seasons or during different things that are going on, or even like something that I really enjoyed five years ago, maybe isn't something that I enjoy as much anymore. Totally. And that's okay. Yeah. I almost feel like I feel that dichotomy at times, it, like it's possible to actually be busy and bored at the same time. You know, because what I need now is more social time and I'm really busy with all of this work stuff and executing work and doing work, uh, but I'm also quite bored socially. <laughs> like a lot of my needs have to do with friend time and not just client time or people time that are that are part of the Bossed Up community. It's also about spending time with people, like you mentioned earlier, are very much not into what you're doing <laughs> professionally. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, obviously we've talked about, you know, agency and acting with intention and sort of this idea, I think that, you know, maybe you use these words at one point of like being kind of the boss of your career and your life. I'm interested in, you know, uh, kind of as the last thing, digging into that a little bit more, because I think that it's easy for someone who, let's say, doesn't work for themselves to sort of disassociate with that idea of like being the boss of your career and life, that it's really easy, I think, to see yourself in that if you do, you know, work for yourself, right? And so for someone who doesn't fit that and maybe isn't even in like a management or typical like boss position or doesn't really like identify with that. Can you give like an example or two of what it actually looks like to see yourself as the boss in your life? Yeah, I think more and more these days we can actually count on continuous loyalty between employer and employee. You know, no longer is it like my grandfather's career in which he worked for the bank as an entry-level banker and then worked his way up the chain over 40 years to become, uh, you know, the head of relations between Bogota and New York for Citibank, which is amazing. You know, he really, like, lived the American dream. But is that so much a thing these days? Not really. You have to be proactive and take responsibility for shaping your own career or someone else is going to do it for you. So if you like where you're at, great. Make sure that you're being proactive about keeping your job or growing within the same employer. So maybe your position changes over time. Maybe you're taking on new responsibilities. That has nothing to do with actual hierarchical management theory. Mm-hmm. I think being the boss of your career means taking proactive steps to get what you want out of your career, whether it's a raise or paid parental leave or added flexibility, but you know, making sure that you're always aware of the, the trade-off between I'm performing a certain kind of way for this employer and I am being clear about what I expect in return and I'm, I'm advocating for what I want in return, As, especially including when you f- start to feel complacent. One of the women in my book that I profile is named Janelle. And she found herself being going from a total burnout, toxic workplace where she worked all the time to landing kind of a sweet gig. You know, the money was good. The hours weren't insane. She felt like she could rest and heal and rejuvenate and get clear on what she really wanted to do. So over the course of about two years, she found herself mentally twiddling her thumbs a little bit, wondering, is this all? And she even felt a little guilty for wanting more because she knows what it's like to feel so burnt out and overworked and not making enough money to make ends meet. But she took it upon herself to really prioritize a job search that yielded the kind of job opportunity that didn't just pay the bills, 
but really fueled her and engaged her intellect and relied on her creativity. And now she's crushing it in an even better paying position that she's joined a media company that she's then shifted her role a few different times now and continuously grown, continuously developed, all because she didn't sit back and enjoy the ride at her prior employer. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important whether you want a career that engages your intellect at such a high capacity or just pays the bills to take responsibility for being proactive in pursuing that and advocating for exactly what you want to get out of your career. Yeah. Can you share one or two things that you've done to invest in your own professional development? Sure. Well, one is when I found myself um, having just dissociated with my co-founder, I was feeling quite alone in this pursuit. So the first thing I did was formalize a board of advisors. And anybody can do this. There's no rocket science to it. I just asked my mentors, who I relied upon anyway, if they would be willing to join me as a mentor in a slightly more formal setup. I would write quarterly reports to them, and I had a quarterly phone call with them, and I was it was expected that I would call upon them for help. And so one of them taught me how to do my accounting and how to keep books. Um, I have also subsequently hired an accountant because I don't want to master accounting. <laughs> um, but, you know, really reaching out to people who have different experiences and who are a little bit further ahead of you. All of the folks on my advisory board are 10 years my senior and have been around the block before in terms of this kind of work that I've been pursuing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then similarly, I recently joined the National Speakers Association because I ran into lots of other keynote speakers on the circuit, and I am in many ways self-taught. You know, what I'm doing, uh, I I love developing curriculum with the help of research and researchers, but in terms of managing myself, I don't have a speaker's bureau. You know what I mean? I've just been figuring this out as I go and, and really marketing my services by providing free content first online. And so joining the National Speakers Association last year has helped me to better understand the market that I operate in and really learn from a a well-established group of peers, um, again, many of whom are 10 years more senior to me because they've been in the business longer. And it's just a good reminder that I think every year we should be investing in our own professional development, whatever you need at the time, with whatever resources you have at the time. Yeah, I love that. I think that's a good place potentially to start to wrap up. But is there anything, you know, I know we've talked about a bunch of different subjects. Is there anything that you really wanted to mention that hasn't come up yet? I don't think so. We ran the gamut here. Uh, I'm just grateful for the opportunity to share because there is so much about about this work that applies to different people's lives differently. So mm-hmm. I appreciate you you raising those questions. Yeah. Okay. Well, the way that we end these episodes are with a series of rapid-fire-ish community questions. So <laughs> awesome. my uh, Patreon community, the wonderful folks who fund and support the show, um, essentially we pick, you know, eight questions. You know, this season it's eight questions um, that all eight guests are answering the same Ooh. eight questions if you're down to answer some totally random questions. Let's do it. What's something that you do purely for fun and joy? I play the drums or I learn, I'm learning how to play the drums, like in a rock and roll band. <laughs> I love that. What's something that really makes you feel at home? Um, slippers and a bathrobe. You know, I feel like slippers are underrated. I mean, I just bought my husband slippers for Christmas and he uses them every morning and I feel like it has genuinely improved his life, his quality of life astronomically. <laughs> 
Slippers for all. Slippers for all. What's one thing that you do in your most important relationships that you feel helps to keep them strong and healthy? I mean, we play together, play sports together. We play music together. We just play stuff together. I think that's so important. Yeah. What are three things that you have been feeling grateful for lately? My beautiful, loving, adorable, brilliant dog, Teddy the dog. He's nine and a half. Um, Generous women creators like you, Nicole, who have been willing to have me on as I've been promoting the hell out of my book, which is a very vulnerable thing to do. So thank you. Uh, And then grateful for Negronis. I'm new to the Negroni cocktail. I don't know if you've had a Negroni, but there's an amazing Negroni bar here in in Denver that's woman-owned, and it's called Bar Helix on Larimer Street. If If anyone ever has a chance to check it out, it's amazing. And I'd never had this delightful Italian cocktail before, but it is delicious. The next question is about boundaries. What's a boundary of yours that's important to you, and what does it look like in your real life to enforce it? Uh, creative time. So I, a lot of my work, my best work is done with wide open gaps of time uh, and the ability to write freely without having to check the, the clock every 10 minutes. And enforcing that looks like using a Calendly link to schedule all of my meetings only in the afternoons or evenings. So I, I keep my mornings meeting free so that it's creative time only. Yeah, I struggle to do creative work in tight timeframes as well. And yeah, yeah, so having the uninterrupted space, like I even work better when it's like the full day, like I don't have anything I'm thinking about, you know, I'm recording later or doing anything like that. And of course, that's not always possible, you know, but totally. um, And for the average office worker, I think the rise of the open office floor plan has been disastrous for people's ability to concentrate. So I can't, we all deserve that kind of time. (laughs) What's the last thing you felt really excited about? Oh my god! So there's a um, there's a place here in Denver that has a weekly or at least monthly Friday night roller skating rink parties. They're like raves, but on roller skates. And I have decided that it is my two year anniversary of living in Denver, and I have yet to go to this thing. So I am very excited because I'm committed to roping my friends into going raving on roller skates with me very soon. (laughs) So good. Um, The next question is about books. Which two or three books, any type of book, any genre, would you say have either had the biggest impact on you or that you find yourself recommending or rereading most often? Hmm. Let's see. Recommending or reading. I very much like Jessica Bacall's anthology called Mistakes I Made at Work, which are all about very famous women sharing – genuinely vulnerable stories of their their biggest fuck-ups at work, <laughs> which is refreshing and rare. Uh, I'm looking behind me at my bookshelf, so hold on. Mindset is good. Um, okay, two others. One is more of an academically wonky book, which is Mindset by Carol Dweck. It's old. I think it's from the 80s. Uh, 60s is when she originally started doing this research, and I think she finally published it in a book in the 80s. But it's all about how a growth mindset can really help you level up in your life and take big risks and start to shift your own identity. And everybody else who's talked about mindset since then has basically bastardized her work, (laughs) to put it lightly. So I really love her original source. Carol Dweck is like the OG on mindset. And then – Let's see. 
porn now. Obviously, you should all read my book, which is great. It's Bossed Up, A Grown Woman's Guide to Getting Your Shit Together. But one other really geeky book by two um, cognitive science brothers that I love is called Switch, How to Change When Change is Hard. And it's by Chip and Dan Heath. I reference it a lot in my work because it's all about the behavioral psychology of changing your life and making change stick in your community or your family or your company, too. Yeah, I really enjoyed both Switch and Mindset, so I'm going to have to check out Mistakes I Made at Work because I have not heard of that, and that sounds fabulous. Um, Awesome. Last question. If you could leave our community, the listeners, with one call to action, what would it be? Maybe a question to ask themselves or a small action to take? I would say the best thing you can do for yourself and others is really think about how you can lift as you climb. Lift as you climb is a phrase I use all the time on my podcast. I, I close with it, in fact, but I, re- I recently realized it was the motto of one of the earliest groups of African-American women in our country. So they were advocating on behalf of themselves and their own come-up story in the face of injustice. So I really I, – I would ask your listeners to think critically about how you can lift, a.k.a. turn around and bring others up with you – while you're striving, while you're pursuing your goals, and that it does not have to be one or the other. You can, in fact, do both if we are mindful about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I love that. What's the best place for people to find you and say hi online? Do you have a favorite way to connect with new folks? Yeah. I mean, bossedup.org is the way to be, is the way to, the way to, you know, join our community of courage, which you can join for free at bossedup.org. But I'm also really into the old Instagram. I love me a, a good DM. So <laughs> feel free to follow me at Emily Aries. That's E-M-I-L-I-E. And then Aries like the zodiac sign uh, on Instagram. That'd be great. I will put links to all of that in the show notes. Um, will you also just share quickly when your book's coming out? My book, Bossed Up, A Grown Woman's Guide to Getting Your Shit Together, hits shelves on May 21st everywhere. You can actually pre-order it now on Amazon or wherever you buy your books. I think Amazon has it on sale if you pre-order it. So it's a really big help to first-time authors like me, and it also ensures that my book will be at your doorstep on May 21st. That's so so exciting. I love it. I'm excited ah. for you. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you, Nicole. It's been a pleasure. And that's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for being part of the Real Talk Radio family. Speaking of the Real Talk Radio family, I want to give a huge shout out to Adam Day, my producer and sound engineer. Adam created the music for this show, and he makes everything work and flow and sound way better than I ever could. You can find him and his music and his sound editing work at adamday.net. So go say hi. And as I said way back at the top of the episode, this is a 100% listener-supported show. The show is made possible by awesome people like Natasha. Hi, Natasha. Hi. We're going to do a fun little round of rapid-fire questions if you're ready. Absolutely. I'm totally ready for it. What are you totally obsessed with right now? Uh, I have to be honest. I'm not a particularly obsessive person, so um, there's nothing really right now. But the last song that I was super obsessed with and I had to listen to over and over and over again was Lost on You by LP, but the studio version, not the one that was uh, released on radio. Isn't it funny when you get in that place with a song where you feel like you could listen to it like a thousand times and then you don't listen to it maybe for a couple of years or something and then you hear it in a different context and it's like, yes, I remember this. (laughs) 
Absolutely. I find that music is really emotive for me and uh, really kind of helps me kind of go back into my memory. So it's, um, it's always really nice. It's always funny to hear, a, you know, a song from when you were 12 or 13 and think, oh my gosh, I had such a crush on this person. <laughs> it's like very angsty. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> What's an intentional money-related decision that you've made recently? So I'm between jobs at the moment. So I guess the intentional decision that I'm making is to not spend very much money where possible. So um, picking out discount items at the supermarket, not going out for too many dinners, um, those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What's something that you've been struggling with lately that you have found challenging? Absolutely. Well, as I said, I'm between jobs and it's not just that I'm between jobs. It's more of a kind of a broader transition period. So I finished working in, uh, in East Africa and I can't sort of be there anymore for my work. Um, and so I'm looking for somewhere else to live. Um, and of course I've sort of got the whole world as an option, but it's a little bit dictated by my job and where my partner's going to go. Um, I also don't want to be like really far away from family and friends. Um, so that's definitely something that I'm struggling with at the moment. Like, where am I going to live? What sort of work am I going to do? What is my life going to look like? Um, so, I mean, it, it is a really exciting time, but it's also quite challenging. Yeah, those are all like very light, easy decisions. So, sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> what type of work do you do? Uh, so I work in kind of the governance and political sphere. So um, I've worked with government before. I've worked with international organizations. Um, but also I'm having a bit of a question now about whether I want to continue doing that work going forward because um, it can be quite quite demanding, um, particularly on, on people's personal lives. You're expected to work very long hours, often in um, like conflict zones, um, which means that you're separated from your family and friends. And of course, that brings a whole plethora of security challenges as well. So really trying to kind of evaluate my life and uh, whether I continue with that work going forward, given uh, given all of those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. Obviously, we're going through different things, but I am also in a period of big transition. And when like multiple different things are on the table, right? That it's like what you're saying, it's not just finding a new job. It's, is it even going to be the same like industry or genre of job? Or, you know, if you're not limited by place, okay. And then there's also a partner to consider, like, it's just an interesting puzzle to put together. And sometimes I feel like, yes, obviously we don't want to be stuck where we have no choice, but sometimes too much choice, I feel like can also be a little bit paralyzing. Absolutely. It's definitely, it's definitely challenging. And the other thing as well is that when like everything is open, you have no anchor points. And so that can often be like the most challenging part is that, um, you're sort of questioning like who you are and and you're like, well, do I, do I still like going for a run every morning as I've done for the past 10 years? Or is that open for question as well? Because I'm asking all these other questions about who I am and what I want my life to look like. Yeah, it's tough. I think about it a lot for like myself personally in terms of like looking for what I call the domino or like the domino decision of like what's the one thing that if I were to decide on this like makes everything else easier or takes it out of the equation and sometimes that thing doesn't exist. But I that was definitely a huge part of sort of where I'm at right now of like, okay, what are the couple of things that if I decide on this, then it sort of answers some of the other questions. Um, So I'll be interested to hear what you wind up doing. Yeah, that's a really interesting perspective and way of looking at it. I think I'm going to going to apply that in the next couple of months. What's something that you would love to learn more about this year? Um, that is a good question and one 
that I think will become apparent to me as the the months go by. Um, having lived in kind of a, a weird environment for a while, um, there are lots of things about the world that I don't know anymore. So, for example, I'm staying with a friend at the moment and she's learning how to make vegan cheese. Um, and the concept of that is just completely out of my mind. So uh, I don't have an answer to that yet, but I think something will come up soon. Yeah, I love that. Last question. What's one thing that you have recently been wishing that people are more open and honest about? Oh, I love this question. So for me, it's about people and their relationships and the challenges that they face in those relationships with other people, not necessarily just romantic, but family and friends and how they deal with them. Um, I feel that people aren't necessarily super open and honest about that. And I think it would be really helpful if we heard more from other people about their experiences, particularly in the way that they've positively managed um, conflict and difficult points in their relationships with people. Yeah, I've been thinking about too that I wish people were more honest and about their like whether it's relationships with their parents or family of origin or like I think a lot of family stuff too doesn't really get talked about and I'm always interested in how people navigate those dynamics. Absolutely. No, that would be uh that would be much more interesting if people were open about that. Yeah. So you're a member of our Patreon support squad, which means that you're one of the people that listeners can thank for making this podcast possible since you make a powerful reoccurring pledge that helps to fund the costs of producing the show and paying the guests each season. Can you share why you decided to support the show? Sure. So I derive a lot of entertainment and value from listening to the podcast. And I sort of applied that if I go to the movies, I spend money. Um, If I buy a book, I spend money. If I'm listening to a podcast, I should be doing the same thing too. Mm, I love that. It's funny doing this podcast and like using this funding model has really changed the way that I think about exactly what you just said. Like the things that I do and don't spend money on, what I expect to be free, what I'm happy to pay for, what I'm resentful to pay for. Like it just brought a lot of interesting stuff up to the surface for that. Absolutely. Um, Last thing, what do you love most about being in our community? This is going to sound so cliche, but I really love your email every week. Um, As you say, it's very raw and open and honest, and I derive a lot of value from it. You are not alone in that. I get that a lot from people, (laughs) and that always delights me because writing those emails is like my favorite thing. So (laughs) I'm glad to hear that. Uh, Do you want to share with folks um, where you live currently and maybe a social media link or something if people want to say hi? Sure. So I am currently in Melbourne, Australia, and I'm on Facebook. Um, Natasha Whitemore, I'm pretty easy to find, I think. I love it. And to everyone listening, if you love the podcast, if you want to help keep it going, if you want lots of bonus content, plus other fun opportunities and extras, just go to patreon.com slash Nicole Antoinette to make your pledge of $8 or more for each eight-episode season. I can't tell you how much that support means to me. And we'll have so much fun getting to know each other after you've joined our community. Maybe we can even record a future outro together and hang out a little bit um, just like this. So until next time, here's a big virtual hug and a reminder that we're all just doing the best we can. And no matter what, we're in this together. 